I'm Michael Holly, and you're listening to the Celtics Pride podcast on Celtics Blog. Welcome to the Celtics Pride podcast on Celtics Blog. I am Adam Motenko here with my twin brother, Josh Motenko. What's going on, everybody? And our good friend, Mike Minkoff. How's it going, gentlemen? And we have a special guest today. If you have lived in and around the Boston area as a sports fan for the last couple decades you and you've read a newspaper or listened to the radio or even watched some national television, you're likely to know our get- next guest uh, he was on a team that won the Pulitzer Prize early in his career. He's a New York Times bestselling author. His new book is called The Big Three, out in time for the holidays. Uh, it's about the second big three of Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, and Ray Allen, and the 2008 championship team for the Celtics. Michael Holly, thank you so much for joining us. Adam, Josh, Mike, uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on here and to talk some ball with you guys. I mean, to talk about... Uh, the Celtics and the NBA. Uh, this is this is what I'm talking about. This is this is my kind of conversation. So I'm really looking forward to this. Love that energy. Uh, so that we are recording this on November 20th. It's dropping on December 1st when the book comes out. And we found this book to be extremely engrossing and well written. I actually started reading it on the phone as a passenger uh, in a car on a road trip with my my younger brother. Uh, and I usually get car sick when I'm reading in the car and we were like, we we're going down highway one in California, passing these beautiful ocean vistas. I didn't look at any of them cause I could not put this book down. It's a page turner and apparently a cure for car sickness. Oh, that's great. Uh, listen, <laughs> now you're giving me an idea for, uh, maybe a sequel. That's, it sounds like a good place to write. I will you know, you drive that car and I could do some writing with the scenery that you describe. So I, I'm all about that. You've written a couple books on the Patriots, one on the Red Sox. Why and how did you choose to write on this topic of not just the Celtics, uh, but the, that big three? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, this, this book uh, had quite a journey before it came to life. Uh, I talk about it a bit in the acknowledgments, and some people may think there's some hyperbole involved, but it's not. I, I write in the acknowledgments that I went back uh, um, to the time when I first decided to write a book on the Celtics, and I had a note from a different, even a different publisher at the time. Uh, I had a note from the publisher and said, hey, congratulations on the new, new addition to your family. That was my daughter, who is now eight years old. So <laughs> it, you know, eight years ago, I really started, but it was a different kind of project then. Eight years ago, it was going to be something on the the big three and how they're trying to squeeze out another championship in the run before it dissolves and yeah. so that was they had just come off a grueling seven game series against the miami heat you guys remember that they were up mm-hmm. three games to two coming back to boston they had beaten miami in miami paul pierce hit a shot in lebron's face and walked away saying i'm cold-blooded I was yep. like a little Rick James shout out. <laughs> and, and so hey, we were all feeling good. Uh, those of us who, who follow the Celtics and want to see the Celtics do well, Celtics fans, oh, they're about to eliminate Miami. Miami hadn't won a championship at that point. 
And uh, we know what happened. LeBron had a game for the ages, 45 points in game six. They win game seven. And then that next year was really uh, just a barely, uh, a, I can't even call them contenders. I thought they'd be contenders. They weren't. They lost in the first round to the Knicks. And then the big three is over because Ray Allen had already left um, to Miami uh, for that season. And then that season was just Pierce, Garnett, Rondo as the new big three, so to speak. And they just uh, they just weren't very good. Rondo tore his ACL. And so I, I went into that, that project thinking I'll write about a championship team, but it just wasn't quite what I wanted it to be. Uh, it just didn't feel like the right time to do it. I had taken some notes. I kind of put those notes on pause. I said, I'll come back to this project. And sure enough, you know, another book project comes on, comes up. I'm writing a Patriots book, Belichick and Brady. And then, you know, David Ortiz wants to do another book. So I do a book with him. And here we are in 2017. I still have this Celtics project. I'm like, ah, I don't know. It's different. Now it's different. You got a new head coach. You got new players. But it just made sense in retrospect, thinking about who the team is now and who the team was. It just felt like it was a good time to kind of put the project that I had started with the knowledge that I have now about the progression of the organization. And so it really became about the big three. And that's why the subtitle was so important, The Rebirth of the Celtics. So it's a big three book, but it's also a rebirth of the Celtics book. And I, I'm glad that I waited. I'm glad that I didn't write it in 2012, 13, even though I was really disappointed when the project didn't come together the way I thought it would. I'm glad that I had some distance so I could really figure out what the story truly was. I know that's a long an answer much longer than than you want it, but that's the real answer. It's great. You're alluding to a lot of really great stories in the book that we want to get into a little bit. But first, we were really curious to to learn a little more about what the process of writing was like for you. Uh, it sounds like that period of time, you, there were points where you had some really interesting access. There were interviews. It sounds like there was a lot of just general reporting. Um, what, what was that process like for you? Oh, man. You know, you never know when you're going to get... Uh, emotional with a question I, now you got me if you could see me right now I just like had a little uh a little pang <laughs> like why am i getting emotional now i'm getting emotional because you're right the process to answer your question yes the process is exactly as you describe it there were there were times that uh, i hope that you can see in the book that man is this guy on the team playing yes is this guy in a high level meeting? Yes, he is. Uh, is he on the team bus with them? Yes, he is. <laughs> so there were, there were some of those moments. There were moments where I had some great help with um, assistants, research assistants. One of them who could not get himself away from the Boston courthouses <laughs> on some Paul Pierce information that hadn't been reported regarding the stabbing. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was some of the reporting. Some of it was just good old fashioned interviews. And the reason I'm getting emotional is just my love for basketball and the NBA. It is the sport that I love first. It's the sport that I, that I love the most. And I, I think about um, just how I came to love it and some of the crazy things. You guys are the same way. That's why you're doing this podcast. 
some of the crazy things you've done for basketball, some of the arguments you've had surrounding basketball. And you're like, why are we getting so emotional about this? Why are we, <laughs> why are we screaming at each other? Or why are we laughing so much? Why are we crying so much? Because it's just this game and this league specifically and, and, and this team that will bring those emotions out of you. So when I put it all together, I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed writing about basketball and it reminded me why I fell in love with the sport in the first place. And quite honestly, I was afraid to write about basketball. It's not a coincidence that it's my first basketball book. There was some avoidance hmm. Hmm. For, for many years. I was afraid. Uh, the best basketball book I've, I've ever read <clears throat> is still Breaks of the Game by David Halberstam. Uh, about the Portland Trailblazers in the, in the late 1970s. Jackie McMullen, I'm looking at one of her books right now, uh, When the Game Was Ours. That's a great book. Bob Ryan with Terry Pluto, 48 Minutes. Terry Pluto, Tall Tales. Terry Pluto, Loose Balls. Sam Smith, The Jordan Rules. I mean, there's so many great books on basketball and on the Celtics, and I have so much respect for the sport and the Celtics that I was just kind of afraid to put something out there that, that would not be worthy of the Celtics. So I, I really ran away from writing about basketball because if I was going to write a basketball book, it was going to be on the Celtics. And uh, I finally decided to do it. I said, okay, it's time to confront your fears, Michael Holly, and go in there and write a basketball book. And, and so it was that that's where some of the emotion is coming from, where I finally did it. And, you know, the book is dedicated to my grandparents who were always so supportive of me and my grandmother who pushed me to write about basketball and to consider different angles on basketball. When I was a young reporter for the Akron Beacon Journal, she used to read all of my articles and comment on every single one of my articles. And so it, you think about it, like, think about what I'm saying. It, it's, it's professional, it's personal, it's, um, it's historical. All of these things went into the, the process. What a heartfelt response, that, that idea of sometimes the, the things you really need to do are the ones that feel the hardest and push you outside of your comfort zone. Totally resonates. Uh, this sounds like a labor of love for you, and it's certainly a topic of love for us. And I think we can safely assume all of our listeners. So I think you can be proud of what you've produced here. Uh, and Thank I'm, you. I'm certainly glad that you wrote it. You you mentioned the subtitle being really important, that it's about the rebirth of the Celtics. And while the, the initial title is focuses on the big three, and there's a ton in there about Pierce Garnett and Allen, it really is a story about the Celtics from about 2002 to 2012. And there are two transitions, one that starts with this new ownership group and front office, and that culminates in the trades of the, those big three, uh, and that, that turns the team into what we're seeing today. And there's a ton of characters in the book, folks we know and think of as associated to the Celtics, like Wick Grousebeck and Steve Paliuka, Danny Ainge, Red Auerbach, Rick Pitino, Doc Rivers, but some lesser known members or remembered members like Vin Baker or Daryl Morey's connection to the team. What stories really stood out for you the most when you were writing and, and collecting everything here? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
I guess one that just kind of opened up everything else, and it's just uh, like two two good reminders. Uh, th these stories are, are good teaching points for us as basketball fans today. So the, the first story is just Wick Grossbeck getting the team, you know, just making the determination, hey, I want to I want to buy a Boston sports team. Wouldn't it, it's nice to have that much money where you can just say, I want to <laughs> buy a Boston sports team. Yeah, I want to buy one too, but I got no chance. But Wick Grossbeck saying, I want to buy a Boston sports team and making the determination that if he doesn't get the Celtics, he's probably not going to get any team because it's going to be the last team to sell in this lifetime. And, and you think about that, making that determination 18 years ago, he's right. Yep. I mean, think about the, think about the Kraft family. When Robert Kraft doesn't want to run the Patriots day to day, it's going to be Jonathan and, and, and Dan Kraft and, and Josh and, and their grand and, and Kraft's grandkids and, the Jacobs family. So when Jeremy already has stopped, stepped, stepped away from some day-to-day -day stuff. So it's the Bruins and Charlie. Um, and you think about the Red Sox, John Henry doesn't look like he's going to sell that thing anytime soon. He's got Nesson. He's got the Red Sox. That's an empire. So Wick Grossbeck made, making the determination that he wanted the Celtics, but it's not just buying them. It's what he did when he took over the team and how he hired different people. Like some people he already knew, some people he didn't know. And it was just like this aggressive approach to finding the best and the brightest minds, even if they didn't have the track record that you might expect a basketball executive to have. Like the current president of the team, Rich Gotham, didn't have any basketball experience, but Gotham didn't know him. He heard people talking about him. He said, oh, it sounds like a guy I should hire. Daryl Morey put together a presentation for him. Morey was a consultant to the ownership group, but his presentation was so impressive, they hired him. And then once Morey is hired, he's looking for somebody who knows analytics, and he brings in Mike Zarin, and he thinks Zarin is very impressive. He's like, okay, I'll hire him. And Zarin is still there today as assistant general manager. And Zarin was up against a guy from Boston who was now the director of analytics for Twitter. So it was both of them. <laughs> uh, so it's just looking at the lesson there is there are good people everywhere, whether they are experts in the field or not. Don't be so close minded to just look at certain people, look at everybody. Uh, lots of people can help you. That's lesson number one. And then I think lesson two for Danny Ainge is don't just, go with the existing narrative. And as I point out in the book, Danny plays these games with people where he will tell you things that he doesn't believe to see how you respond. Yeah, <laughs> uh, see if it, you can come back at him with honesty, see how you're going to react. Yeah, see how you respond. Because He wants to know, hey, how do you think? I, I, I'm going to need to to run some things by you in my draft prep. And I need you to know that, I need to know that you're just not telling me what I want to hear. So, you know, Danny might go into the office and say, Michael Jordan is the fifth best player on that Chicago Bulls championship team. <laughs> to see if anybody will say anything. I think B.J. Armstrong is the greatest bull of all time. Like, he'll just come up with these ridiculous arguments to see what people say. And sometimes he believes them. Most of the time he doesn't. So he wants, to, he wants independent thinkers, even if you disagree with him. That's one, because he and Zarin rarely agree politically, philosophically, but they work well together because they're willing to push each other and they're willing and both of them 
can make convincing arguments that might make the other person pause and consider what they previously thought. And so when Danny came to the Celtics, uh, many of us thought that Paul Pierce and Antoine Walker, that's the foundation for a really good championship team. Maybe you need to add one more guy and you, you're on your way. And Danny never believed it. He thought Pierce was the guy who needed to stay. And he wasn't anti-Antoine as a guy, but he didn't think Antoine was indispensable. And so he, list, he was very open about listening to Ant trade offers for Antoine. And he traded him. And it didn't look good initially. It was not a great trade per se. It's not like he brought in a good player. You could say, oh, look at that guy. That guy is good as, just as good as Antoine. No, he brought in some picks that led to other picks that led to some of the stuff they used to get Kevin Garnett. So I, the lesson there, just don't, don't think that what everybody says is necessarily the way it's going to be. And even if you lose a player and don't get that return immediately, it doesn't mean that all is lost. If you have good people running your organization, eventually it's going to work out for you. You, you've got great stories in the book uh, about the ownership group, about Danny Age. From yeah, Paul Gaston did not want to, wasn't looking to sell the team, and Wick had a number in his head and was able to get to that number, and then had to figure out how to put the money together and who else was around that loved the Celtics as much as him and had some money to throw at it. Uh, stories about Ainge as a negotiator, including how he negotiated his first contract with the ownership group. Uh, there's just some great stories about that transition. And as you were saying, it was not, it, it was certainly a transition. It was not easy. You had a coach, Jim O'Brien, who it was unclear whether he was going to stay or not. Um, you had players that some were going to stay and some were not, but Danny will trade almost anybody. Um, so that there's, there's uh, a culture to manage with that, that they were also built that starts with the ownership group and the front office and then heads down to the coach and players. Yeah. You know, and, and it's funny that you say that because I think the Jim O'Brien story itself goes back to the narrative thing, doesn't it? Hey, we like all of us right now, we know this, whether it's the NBA or corporate America, uh, we have all, uh, maybe we're all so cynical or maybe it's cynicism or just experience. A new boss takes over, uh, a new owner takes over and you think, okay, here we go. Here comes the clearing. Here come the firings. Uh, this guy's just going to bring in his own people and wipe everybody out. Danny Ainge was hired. You know, Chris Wallace was there. He was not well regarded, and Wallace knows that. He he even says like his his uh his approval ratings were not that high at the time when Danny Ainge got in, and Wallace expected to be fired uh, by Ainge, and. Jim O'Brien thought, okay, here comes Danny. He's going to bring in his own guy. Right. Danny spent time with O'Brien three or four days, and he said, oh, this is my coach. I want him to stay. And Chris Wallace, hey, you worked with Rick Pitino, uh, who I respect as a basketball mind. You, were, you worked with Pat Riley. I respect him. I want you to stay. And so, wait, wait a minute. These guys, are their heads are spinning. What? Wait a minute. What's going on here? But I think Chris Wallace understood it. He believed it. Jim O'Brien didn't quite trust it. He didn't trust it. So when, when Danny is, is starting to tear down the team and trading Antoine and making these trade, trading for Ricky Davis, 
uh, and the record is going down. Jim O'Brien's still thinking like a coach. I, we got to win. Hey, we win, We won five games in a, in a row. Our record is better. Danny's thinking those first couple of years, I don't care about the record. I, we're not a championship team, and I'm going to do everything I can to give you the assets and the support to get yourself to a championship level. So it was just a disconnect there where Danny is thinking big picture, and he wants O'Brien to think big picture with him, but O'Brien is still saying, nope, this is game to game week to week. And if you're going to make trades like this, I don't want to be here. So 42 games into Danny's uh, first year as a general manager, he's looking for a new head coach because O'Brien resigns. And I think the people who stayed with Danny, they got it. Not necessarily the players, but the front office and front office and staff. If Danny tells you I'm in this for the long haul, you don't have to worry that if things don't go well, go well in the first year of your contract, you're going to be fired. He just doesn't operate like that. He believes in stability. And that's the thing he told Doc Rivers when he was recruiting him. You know, Doc is coming off a of firing and here comes this coach and here comes this general manager saying, hey, I want to hire you. And Doc is thinking, oh, wait a minute, I just got fired. The team's not very good. You mean to tell me that if we're not good after a year or two, you're going to stick with me? And Danny said, yeah. I want you, I, I'm, I'm in this thing for the long haul. That's how I want to run this organization. I don't like the way other NBA teams do it. I want to do it in a different way. And he did. Yeah, you talk about uh, Ainge's desire for productive disagreement with Jim O'Brien. That, that They had a heated argument uh, right before he resigned. And it's proven true what you said about Aunt, uh, Danny and, and uh, consistency with coaches. Doc Rivers, Brad Stevens. They've been here for a long time. Doc left partly because he wanted to leave, and they worked together on that. Danny got some value in a first-round draft pick for that also, but uh, that's really important to him. Um, let's talk more about, about Doc Rivers, about the big three. I love the story about how uh, the trade for KG, and I mean, you had a number of different stories about how that team came together. Uh, one specifically where Grousebeck is gets involved in the KG trade with the Minnesota owner and Minnesota's owner, Glenn Taylor, is the first one. He said when he accepts the trade, he says, let me be the first to congratulate you on winning the 2008 title. He knew he was giving them the title with KG. Yeah, you know, I, the, the thing I love about this story is that uh, before they even got to that point, you know, Danny had put a lot of work in. That was a complicated trade. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there are so many stars. I mean, who's the star of the book? Is it the, is it the players? Is it uh, the ownership? Uh, it could be Doc Rivers. But as Doc said uh, later in the book, he said, you know, Danny gets credit for, he's going to get credit for the big three, but he, he should get credit for, you know, other role players he's put together. But he should just get credit in, in general for his mentality and his smarts. Like he's, uh, I, and I don't know if you guys know people like this, there's some people, I, I guess I, I call it the uh, the Harvard experience, uh, experiment, and, and, and you'll know what I'm talking about on this. There are some people who went to Harvard, and you ask them where they go to school. A school in Cambridge. Before you can, before you can, right, right, right. Hey, you know, school in Cambridge. Well, where, where, where Leslie? Well, well, I mean, no, no, down the street from there. All right. Where, where, where? I mean, where, is it 
four-year school, two-year school? Well, you know, yeah, four-year school. And you got to drag it out of them eventually. It's Harvard. They, they won't let you. They don't tell you that they're smart. And then there are people, before you can even ask where, if you can get where, you barely get where out of your mouth, and they're saying Harvard. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, and so Danny is the, you got to drag it out of him. He's a really, really, really smart guy. And he is smart in basketball. He's smart outside of basketball. Uh, he knows what he wants. He knows how to talk to people. He knows how to relate to a number of people. And so what he was able to do, the work that he put in on that KG trade, just working that thing, uh, was impressive. And and so when you hear, whenever you hear somebody say, oh, of course he made that trade. Kevin McHale is his best friend. No, you, that's somebody who's not really understanding all of the things that went into it. Now he had an he had two advantages. One, yes, he had a he had a rapport with Kevin McHale, so he could talk with him at any time. That's an advantage. Yep. And the other advantage is McHale was looking for certain things that only Danny had. And the one of the the brilliant trade brilliant pieces of that Garnett trade was the future first that he got from McHale in the Wally Zerbiak deal. And so. When Mikhail was looking to trade KG, he knows he's going to be a lottery team. You trade KG, you're going to the lottery. But Danny Ainge has your future. He's got that future first. So you go to the lottery, you're not going to get the rewards of it because Danny Ainge is holding on to it. That is a major advantage over anybody else. Okay, go ahead, trade, trade KG. You can't rebuild because Danny Ainge has got your unprotected lottery pick. And so I, I think that that's got to be that can't be overstated enough. I just decided, by the way, having this conversation with you guys, we're pushing this past six. We're having too much fun. Okay, <laughs> we're going past six. We're going. The kids, the boys, get their boy time. They're just excited. They're, they're going. Tonight's despicable mystery. They've seen it before. They just want to. They want to see the same jokes and laugh at the same jokes. We got time. We got time. All right. I was just thinking. Uh, I, we were excited to have you on, but I didn't expect it to be this fun. So yeah, let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Um, so uh, I think just Danny as a negotiator, I think he's underrated in that regard. Um, but he had put all that work in to, bring, to come back full circle to your question on Glenn Taylor. He puts all the work in. He's got he's got Ray Allen in place. Now he's got to work on KG. He, he's, he's agreed with Mikhail on everything. And then it comes down to Glenn Taylor has the nerve to say to Mikhail, ask for Rajon Rondo. Oh, man. Mikhail knows it. Like, wait a minute. Danny doesn't want to give up Rondo. Now the owners are involved. So after all the work I put in, it's really going to come down to Rajon Rondo. Rajon Rondo can make this whole deal fall apart. Uh, a cynic could say, well, just give up Rondo. But Danny didn't want to do that. He'd already get, felt like he had given up a lot, and this team is not going to work the way he wants it to without a point guard like Rondo. So Glenn Taylor and Wick Grosbeck are talking about Rondo being in the deal versus Sebastian Telfair, and Wick breaks some news to him. They look, hey, I know you see Telfair on the roster. But I don't see him on my roster because he will not play for me. I've already I've taken his nameplate off the locker, and he will never be a Boston Celtics. So how about this, Glenn? 
I'll give them to you for free. I'll pay a salary, you take them. And that's what sealed the deal. And by the way, you can't do that now. Uh, that was something you could do at the time in, in, in 2007. You could uh, pay somebody's salary for another team, but you can't do that now. You talk about the friendship between Ainge and Mikhail that allowed that deal to happen. The team comes together. Doc Rivers takes the big three out on a duck boat on the same parade route that all the other teams in Boston have been taking. And he says, this is where you're going to go at the end of this season. And he talked about sacrifice. That team coalesces. Uh, and and they were hyper-competitive. I mean, there's even a story that I love when Shaq joins the team a, a couple of years later <laughs> where he's in practice and KG doesn't like his pick and roll defense. And he says, hey, Shaq, you're on the MF in Boston Celtics. This is how we play defense, all right? Yeah, yeah. And he listens. That's Shaq. <laughs> so I, and you've got stories about uh, about uh, playing against LeBron in the playoffs. I mean, LeBron and Pierce had some duels. This was this is the the quintessential team for a lot of younger Celtics fans. This is who where they had success. Yeah, it's great. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say a, a couple things on that. One, uh, when I was asking someone about uh, KG, I said, "Well, man, this K, he's standing up to everybody." Uh, and the response was, "Hey, like, look, KG is standing up to Mike Tyson. He'll get his ass kicked, but he'll stand up to Mike Tyson. It doesn't matter." <laughs> you know. He's, he's just that kind of guy. Um, and then on the, on the duck boat, that, that conversation that Doc had with them, and the one thing I couldn't get, I really was trying hard, but my one thing I wanted out of that whole uh, duck boat ride is Doc told them, hey, there are some players who will never win because they won't sacrifice. You're not on the list but you could be. I wanted the list desperately. <laughs> who are, who does Doc think, and, and maybe some of those guys have retired, maybe they haven't, but who did Doc see as that kind of player who would just never win no matter what because they were unwilling to, to sacrifice? But it's just good. I, I told a friend of mine, uh, to, to get to your question, I told a friend of mine like during this pandemic, the one one of the things that I miss um, is just being around basketball people. Basketball people I find fascinating. And, and, and I'm not just talking about basketball players. I'm just talking about basketball people, basketball scouts, basketball coaches, uh, general managers, just people who hang around the game. They just have such a colorful way of looking at the game and looking at life. Uh, they tell great stories, and and that's what it was. Did I did I enjoy that immensely? I just love just being around the game itself, the sounds of the game, the routines of the game, and and the people who who make it go. Yeah, Mike, this is Josh here, and you know, I, as a basketball coach at the college level for nine years. The one thing I kept telling my players each year was about this concept of team ego, right? And I would read them this quote, you know, supposedly from Kevin Garnett about how, you know, I got the biggest ego in the entire league, but my ego is not an individual ego. It's not about me. My ego is a team ego, you know, and, and I told my players, this was a Kevin Garnett quote, really what it was is a Bill Russell quote, you know, and yep. something that he told KG 
And and that's the difference, I think, between a championship team and, and just an also ran is, you know, you got a guy, Kevin Garnett, when he's standing up to Shaq, he's not saying you're doing this my way because I'm the alpha dog and you're, you know, a, a has been former star, you know, which he could have said. It's this is how we do things with this team, with this organization. It's the team ego. And I mean, it's just so rare to find that nowadays. And if you look at the championship teams the last few years, I feel like you see you can see team ego, you know, more than the rest of the NBA. Oh, you know, listen, when this pandemic is over, all of us, we're going to get together. We're going to have some drinks. <laughs> we're going to have some uh, chicken wings. We're just going to have a good time. And you guys are on it. You guys are asking <laughs> some great <laughs> questions and bringing up some great points. And it's so funny, Josh, that you would say that because when you first said that, you tell your players that, and it's Kevin Garnett. I my thought was, I think that's a Bill Russell quote. Then you came back and said it's a Bill Russell quote. Absolutely, it is. And you know what's so what's so interesting about that? I was fortunate to have some really, uh, really intimate experiences with with Bill Russell that that still just resonate with me today. I'll tell you guys about a couple of them, but one of my favorite. That is a Bill Russell, uh, that mentality of, of like team ego. And he wanted, he told a story and it was so great. He said he, uh, he really wanted to average after one season, I think he averaged, you know, 17, 18. And he said, I really want to average 20 points a game. Went to the off season, said, I want to average 20 points a game. And so a week, two weeks into the off season, he's thinking, that he wants to average 20. And then he had a moment where he just sat down with himself and said, no, that's not what's best for our team. What I need to do is average more rebounds. So he averaged that year, probably like 16 and 20. <laughs> and, and, and it's a great example of team ego. Yes, he, it, it mattered to him. It, yeah, yeah, success, individual success does matter. We can't pretend like it doesn't, but what's best for when you can think about what's best for the team and you can get some of your individual accolades, but the team can, can be uh, in the best position, that's what you want. And that's what Bill Russell uh, was able to do. And that's what, as you said, Josh, that's what some championship teams are able to do now. I, I, I see that in LeBron James. You know, he won a championship uh, you know, last, you know, last season, and he was not the, the leading scorer on the team. He led them in assist. Could he have been the leading scorer on the team? Sure. But I'm gonna, Anthony Davis, I'm going to go to Anthony Davis. He's going to be our leading scorer. I'll still have a very good season, but I, my team needs me to do other things for us to be successful. And, and you talk about championship teams. I think all championship teams – have that um, in their championship years. But look, let's face it, that thing is fragile. It's not going to last. And so that, that, that's why you enjoy it. You, when you're the Celtics and you got those 17 championship banners up there, enjoy them. And now the Lakers have their 17, enjoy it. But it's not promised. It's not something that just kind of replicates itself. You show up the next year with the same team. It doesn't always happen. And that's pointed out in the book that Ubuntu Celtics team 
That was for yeah. 2007, 2008. They said it in 08, 09. They said it in 9, 10, but it was gone. It was there in 08, but it started to seep out the door, seep out uh, the back door after the championship because it changed. Like personalities change, relationships change, your personnel changes. And so just celebrate it while you have it because it's not promised to be with you for four or five years. Right. And the, the Ubuntu slogan is it's still being recycled around. I mean, I got a buddy who's uh, one of the assistant coaches at Montana State, and I'm looking at all his Twitter, Twitter and, and Facebook posts. It's all Ubuntu, hashtag Ubuntu. And I'm like, man, that's that's the old saying. Why are we still using that saying in 2020? But I mean, it's it works because it's it's a way to get these guys to to buy into something bigger than themselves. You know, and a lot of yeah. times. The yep. grind of being a player, you got to make it to the next level. You can never appreciate the level you're at because you're always looking to the next level. I coached at the JUCO level. You know, that was big. We have guys for one year or two years. But, you know, throughout college basketball, you got guys who they just want to be a pro. And so they're never really able to sit and smell the roses and enjoy where they're at. You know, and, and that's true in the NBA as well. You know, you're always trying to get the next contract, the next bag, the, the amount of respect you think you deserve and you're willing to move you know, from this team to the next. And, you know, I was thinking the other day, like, who are the guys that are really going to stay with their team nowadays for their entire career? And, you know, I thought about the Warriors. And now with the, the recent Clay Thompson injury, it just brings that point that you made, you know, home Absolutely. even more so. Like, nothing is promised. Just look at the Warriors right now. Yeah, you know, and, and Josh, um, another thing about, you know, team building, and this is true in basketball and it's true in life too. When you look at people who are coming into an organization, what you really have to do to find out if you have the right team, and and sometimes people find this out too late. You find this out after the contracts have been signed or uh, the team has been put together, and then you figure out what the flaws are. But in a perfect world, wouldn't you like to know, uh, you, know you say you're, you're, you're a coach, wouldn't you like to go to each of your team members and say, what motivates you? What's your motivation? Like, why? Why? And on, and, and they get an honest yeah, answer. Don't, don't tell exactly. me what I want to hear. Don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me the truth. And for some people, they're playing pro basketball because it's a lot of money. It's guaranteed. I mean, look, hey, I'd be a fool not to do this. I'm six eight. I don't love basketball, but uh, I can play it, so I'm going to play it. So, so for some people, it's a job. For some people, they're trying to. Uh, prove somebody wrong at some level. Somebody told them they couldn't do it and right. they're out to prove that they can do it. For other people, it's glory. I, I want to be recognized as a pro basketball player, not necessarily achieve excellence. I just want to be recognized as a great player. And then other people, it is, it's the love of the game and the love of doing something that is larger than yourself and connecting uh, with other people. Now, all those things I just mentioned, does everybody have to be the same? No, but you got to make sure that all of those motivations are in balance. So I can have a really, really selfish guy on my team. I can't have five of them, right? Right. I can have somebody right. who wants to be the greatest and they want to they show that they are the greatest scorer in the world. Yeah, I can have one of those guys. Hey, Brooklyn Nets, I can't have three of them. <laughs> so, so it's just, uh, 
it, it's just really interesting to see how teams are are put together. And and I was uh, making fun of myself the other day uh, with my friend Michael Smith. I said, all the books I've done, they really have been about the same thing. If you really break it down, it's just different versions. Some of them are basketball, some of them are baseball, some of them are football, but they're all team building and they're all about relationships and, and how relationships thrive and how they, they come apart. And, and sometimes it's just a, a one small thing that brings people together. And unfortunately, sometimes it's one small thing or a series of small things that tear people apart. Let's get into how the, the small things that tore the Celtics apart. We're talking about Ubuntu and motivation and team ego and the team applied Ubuntu, this idea that I am because you are, we are all wrapped up in a bundle of life together. As an aside on Ubuntu, I actually, I read Desmond Tutu's No Future Without Forgiveness, where he explains that idea. That's where Doc Rivers got it from. I chose to study abroad in South Africa in uh, 2003. And I was really interested in this idea. Nobody there knew what I was talking about. It was oh, that's like, awesome. By the way, that's awesome for, for you. That's yeah. that's an incredible that, experience. But this this relationships on the Celtics team, they were all bought into Ubuntu in 2008 to great success. And then cracks started forming. And I want to talk specifically about the Alan Rondo beef that still exists today that has really severed this team. Um, that apparently, it started, as you write, with uh, with... Ray Allen. Well, it started with a, a relationship where Ray Allen really felt like he was a mentor and Rondo was a mentee. And then Allen shared a, a trade rumor with Rondo, uh, seemingly from a, I just want to let you know, this is what this, this world is like. This is a business. This might happen to be prepared for it. And Rondo took it as, as criticism and being blamed, uh, for being included in the trade rumors that Alan was blaming him that they were in these rumors together. And I just want to quote here and then, and then here you talk more about this Rondo Allen situation and how it severed the team. But the quote is out of nowhere, Rondo began verbally attacking Allen. It was nasty. It was personal. They'd both been holding in thoughts about one another and they all came tumbling out. Rondo said Allen was jealous of him. Allen said Rondo was BSing everyone on the team by not playing his hardest consistently and playing for assist numbers rather than what was best for the team. Rondo said he was going to get Allen out of Boston. Allen said he'd leave before ever letting Rondo do it for him. They went back hmm. and forth. Some players and staff winced at what was said because they knew no matter what apologies happened, those words could not be taken back. Yo, if you're listening to this right now, you got to go out and buy this book. How could you not go buy this book? <laughs> oh, wow. You know, there's so much there, right? There's so much there. Um, and, and I always always uh, talk to Celtics fans about this because, you know, Celtics fans all have, you know, different opinions on this. And, and most of the time they, they uh, take Rondo's side after the fact. Uh, or or KG's side or Pierce's side because it's everybody really. But it was it started off Rondo, uh, Rondo Allen. But then once Allen left, obviously a Celtics fan will say, "Well, KG didn't leave on his own. Pierce didn't leave on his own. Those guys were traded, but you decided to leave, Ray. So we're with them." But it's much more complex than that, and you know, it, it's 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 like relationships themselves. You just don't, sometimes you just, you click with certain people and you don't even understand why sometimes. You just, just whether it's a, 
platonic relationship or romantic relationship. Sometimes it's just people that you are, you just really like hanging out with and others not so much. And I, I think uh, for Rondo and for Rondo and Ray, I think that relationship was limited, was, was destined to be limited from the start. Because as I write there, it was a mentor-mentee relationship in the beginning. But that relationship was not built for the mentee to grow and to be equal, or in some cases, talent-wise, to be better than the mentor, just, just on that team. You know, Ray Allen uh, has, has a much better career than Rajon Rondo. This is a Hall of Fame, no question, a Hall of Fame career. We know Ray Allen's in the Hall of Fame. I guess Rondo might be, could be, but uh, probably not. But on the, on the Celtics, on the Celtics, Ray, Ray Allen got to the point where his mentee passed him. He passed him uh, with his importance on the team. He passed him also with his relationship with Pierce and Garnett. And I, that relationship was not built for that. It was, it was always going to be, it was just built for a mentor-mentee thing. And once, it outgrew, once Rondo outgrew that very quickly, I think the relationship changed. But it didn't necessarily have to be nasty. But I, I think there are a lot of things were going on there. Rondo was rising. He was a man with the ball. Ray Allen had sacrificed greatly in 07, 08. By the time, uh, maybe didn't think he should be sacrificing all that much anymore. Well, Rondo had the ball. And he was in control of when Ray Allen got it. And even though Allen really had the best field goal percentage of his career playing with Rondo, didn't always like the way Rondo ran the team. And didn't always like the way, you know, Rondo just kind of carried himself. And, and Rondo is a very strong personality and, and Ray's a strong personality too, but Rondo is different. Rondo is just, he's kind of like, he's, he's a little moodier than Ray. Uh, he, he doesn't have that. He's Rondo's a blunt instrument. Okay. This is what it is. Take it or leave it, like it or love it. And Ray Allen's a little more subtle. And so that, 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 that their personalities didn't always mesh uh, and just got to the point where uh, they, they started to kind of, their personal relationship started to fade, become more of a business uh, relationship, but business on the court, not off the court. Ray uh, wasn't always hanging out with KG and Pierce and Rondo and just a lot of factors. And this got to the point where the, relationship continued to deteriorate to the point where it was just untenable and people knew it before Ray left. They knew that thing could not be fixed. So, uh, so maybe the biggest, the, the, the biggest open secret uh, in the Celtics locker room it should have been was that Ray was going to leave. So that was, that's why it was so interesting that they had that response toward him that he was leaving when they knew it really wasn't functional for him to come back with Rondo on the team. That just wasn't going to work. They, they, they had reached their limit. But there was other factors too in this. Like there was the Avery Bradley thing. Would you say that's more like, you know, 20, 30% of why Ray left? And this was like 70, 80% of 
the Rondo stuff? Yeah. Because um, it wasn't just the Rondo thing, right? Like he was, no, he was being pushed out. He was Rondo. aging. I think Rondo was a big part of it. I think Rondo was a part of it. I think Doc uh, was a part of it because Ray was frustrated that, okay, if I go to Rondo, uh, Rondo's not going to change. But let me go to Doc. Doc will get him to change. Well, no, Doc didn't necessarily get him to change to Ray's satisfaction. If I go to Danny, maybe Danny will get him to change. No, Danny's not going to get him to change because Danny's going to keep him. So I, I, I've got no, I don't have the allies that I want. I can't go to KG and uh, Pierce to get them to change because they're friends with them. And I'm friends with them too. Uh, yeah, it, and then, you know, here's Avery Bradley. Avery Bradley, they, they draft this guard. I think this guard is going to help extend my career. But wait a minute, when I'm out, this guard is starting. I lost my starting job to him. They're going with him. I, I think it's just a lot of things. And also I, I, I buried the lead on this, fellas. It was trade rumors too. Okay. Like KG wasn't in any in, in, in any trade rumors, and, and neither was Garnett. I mean, neither was Pierce. But Ray not only was in trade rumors, Ray was traded very briefly, and then the trade was canceled. Oh. So he was very insecure. He was very uh, unstable. His his position in Boston, which he loved, he loved being in Boston. He and his wife Shannon loved the area. It was good for their son Walker, uh, juvenile diabetes. This was a great place for him, for for them, uh, and him. Uh, he was on the board of Jocelyn. I mean, it was just a great fit, but he didn't have the stability in Boston that he needed, and uh, he wasn't getting the respect on the team that he felt like he deserved. So there were a lot of factors that went into it. I just want to point out uh, very ironically and very hilariously, they got mad at him for going to play with LeBron in Miami. Can I just point out that Rondo just won a championship with LeBron? <laughs> yeah. So, oh, I, hey, you can't go play with the enemy. You can't go do that. You just play with LeBron and uh, – before that, he played with Dwayne Wade in Chicago. It's a business, fellas. It's a business. We can't pretend like you're never going to do I would never do that. Yes, you might. You just might. Uh, it's pretty funny how things work out, isn't it? All of these things you're mentioning play a role into the, the dynamics of the relationships. And it makes me think of Pat Riley's Disease of Me or Disease of More after you win the title People start thinking about the business side of things. Rondo's role is, and, and skill set is improving. All of these other things play a role in, in shifting what people want. Once you win it, then people want to, to get more for themselves and you lose the Ubuntu, you lose the team ego. It's so hard. That's why it's so hard to repeat. Uh, Michael, you, you write, uh, there's so many good stories here, but uh, you talk about how, uh, uh, about Alan leaving, you talk about the perk trade, uh, the breakup of this championship-winning team, uh, including the Brooklyn deal, uh, which has built this team now. And, and for time reasons, I just want to transition to talking a little more about this current team. Um, what do you see as parallels between what you saw back then and what this current is going on with this current team? Obviously, they've got the same ownership, same basically same front office. But what else do you see that is either similar or different? Uh, so similar or different than, uh, to the big three? Yeah. Well, I think it's a lot different in the sense that 
you know, we're talking about homegrown stars across the board. And uh, there, there's, um, it feels like, we don't know, but it feels like the window is, is bigger, doesn't it? I mean, you look at Jason Tatum and his age and Jalen Brown and, and Marcus Smart. You know, look at those guys. Those guys are going to be here, uh, we think, for, for a while. And so you just and and they're not none of those players has has reached a prime. So you you know you can contend to be able to contend when all of your players have not hit their peak yet. Uh, that's a great place to be. And uh, with the big three, it was a little more urgent. Every time you you didn't reach a championship, you just felt that clock ticking louder and louder because you just knew it's only a matter of time when they got here. You know, Ray Allen is already, uh, you know, 32 when they get to town, they th 32, 33, and, and they're all over 30. And and you just don't know how many minutes are left in Garnett's legs. And and you don't know how much uh, Ray Allen has left. So it's just like this urgency to win then that's not necess necessarily there now. Uh, I'd say that's one of the differences. But the similarities are, uh, you know, Danny Ainge, still believing that the best formula for success is consistency with his front office. Uh, Mike Zarin has not left. Mike Zarin he was here as an intern and he's still here as an assistant general manager. Doc Rivers left, but here comes Brad Stevens, just signed a contract extension. And Danny feels like he's got one of the best coaches in the NBA and, and Brad Stevens can stay as long as he wants. And so uh, it, it's still that consistency. You still have Wick Grosbeck and, and Bob Epstein and Steve Paliuka and Rich Gotham. You just look at all of their, their front office structure and their ownership structure has not changed. So consistency, I think it's the hallmark of this organization. So on one hand, you have consistency, but don't mistake that with comfort or complacency because they are still, uh, they're still an organization that very much believes in um, not getting, not, not believing, uh, any kind of narrative, not getting too comfortable, not thinking that they've got everything figured out. They're still very much an organization of learners and, and thinking about trends that we don't necessarily see now, but they see coming down the road and they just don't want to be caught flat footed, uh, when this league changes, because it will change fellas, you know, that you've been following basketball, just like I have. You think about the, the way the game was played, you know, 10 to 12 years ago and the game, the way the game is played now, it's just different. The, the, the fact that there's even controversy about a seven footer being drafted number two overall by Golden State, that tells you how much the game has changed because, you know, back in the day, people would draw, they draft size over a dynamic younger player, I mean, dynamic smaller player, but it's just the opposite now. Uh, but I'd say that's the, those are the, the similarities and differences I see in this organization. Yeah, nowadays, uh, Michael Jordan probably would have been picked over Sam Bowie, probably, right? Yeah, Michael Jordan, <laughs> and, and probably even over Olajuwon, too. And he would have been picked apart for not being able to shoot. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, well, so talking a little bit about that consistency, Michael, um, you know, one of the things, that, and you were talking about earlier, kind of how all of your books, regardless of the sport of focus, is really talking about kind of team building and relationship building. So I kind of have two parts to this question. One is, 
you know, in, in chronicling across football, baseball, basketball, and, and the, the Pats, Red Sox, and Celtics specifically, is there anything that really stuck out, has stuck out for you with the Celtics approach to team building and relationship building um, generally? And then, and then the second part is kind of looking at the current team's young core and based on your kind of experience uh, chronicling, observing uh, the previous big three, you know, how do you see those relationships kind of growing together, uh, hopefully together as a Celtics fan, <laughs> um, it, it, as you've observed them over the last handful of years? Yeah, I would say that the first question is a really uh, good one and an important one. I, I would say um, what stands out to me in, in relationships, I, I'll go back to Danny again. And Danny, I think one of his gifts is to be able to, uh, and, and we all have friends like this. I am not the person I'm about to describe, I, um, but I, I have friends like this, and you guys may too, where things appear to be chaotic, things are moving quickly, things are getting emotional, uh, like high charge, you know, tempers are, are, are rising. And then there's that friend of yours who is just able to be calm in, that, in, in those situations and actually get to the source of the problem. It's almost like a, a, a therapist, what a therapist can do. You know, you just say, you're throwing all this stuff to a therapist and the therapist says to you, well, what I heard you say was, <laughs> and just kind of calmly, you know, you're, you're losing it. You're just giving all this information and they just kind of calmly restate it to you. And I think Danny is like that. A lot of, a lot of things can happen, but Danny doesn't overreact to things. Think about last year. Uh, Last year, the Celtics lost, we thought, their two best players. Two All-Stars. They lost two All-Star players in one offseason. Kyrie said he was coming back. Then Kyrie left. And we thought, okay, Al Horford's staying. Al Horford left. And I was like, oh, this is a disaster. They lost Al Horford and, and uh, Kyrie Irving in one offseason? And they replaced two all-stars with one in Kimba Walker. That seemed like a disaster. But now we know, okay, we didn't know uh, watching that movie that Al Horford was pretty much done. Okay, it looks like he may bounce back, but he looked done. And he was a disaster for Philadelphia. But we thought it was a disaster in Boston. It wasn't. And, and Danny looks at these situations and says, okay, it's not great, but I'll figure it out. He does that in personnel. He does that in relationships. There's a story, you guys know the story of Rondo. Didn't He didn't like what Doc Rivers was saying to him uh, during a, uh, a, a film session and he broke a TV. And Doc was mad, Rondo was mad, and, and the team was just uh, shocked that it happened. And Danny, Danny says, okay, Doc, I understand your position. Rondo, I understand your position, and let me tell you, it's not the worst thing I've seen on a good team in my NBA career. It's not the worst thing I've seen. It's not even in the top 10. That's a quote. It's not the top, it's not one of the top 10 things I've seen. Bad things. That's what Danny said. So as everybody is saying, can you believe Rondo did this? Can you believe this? Danny's like, well, wait a minute. Let me have some perspective here. Uh, Rondo, I know you love to win. And I know you're competitive. And I know you felt like you were being picked on. I understand you. I see you. I hear you. But that's not the way to handle it. And if you don't apologize to Doc and the team, I'm going to suspend you. 
And Doc, uh, I know you think Rondo is this and all that, but I'm not going to trade him. But he uh, he he tried to undermine your authority. I can see how you you feel that way. I'm going to suspend him if he doesn't apologize to you. So, as everybody has all of these emotions, Danny Ainge is just able to just kind of keep his cool as everybody else overreacts. And he does that all the time with ownership, with his coaches, with his players, with the media. That's just what he does. I think, I think that's really a, a great skill. As far as this team, this young team, Celtics right now, I, I have high hopes for this team because of those personalities that I talked about about 25 minutes ago. Uh, when I said you can't have all the same personalities on the team, people can be different. Uh, you just can't have too much. I think this team is in balance in its core. Uh, Jalen Brown is brilliant. Uh, he's a social justice warrior. He's a defensive warrior on the team. Uh, he's an ascending player on offense. Uh, he's a leader. He's got a lot of good things going on for him. He's a spokesman. Uh, Jason Tatum is a better player, but they, they, they okay, but they, they, they connect, they, they mesh. They're not envious of one another. They support one another. And Marcus Smart is that guy. You got to put your hand on his chest every now and then when, when things are breaking out. But like, hey, man, don't throw a chair here. Okay, <laughs> All right, stay calm, baby, stay calm. But they need that fire. He's their fire. He's their grit. He's their glue. I've got high hopes for what this team can do together. They need maybe just one more piece or one more guy to develop, uh, preferably a five. <laughs> they need one more guy to develop. And I think uh I think they will be a championship. I think they're a championship team. They've got the DNA for it. I love I love that answer. I love hearing um about I love that story about kind of Danny keeping his cool in the face of kind of a heated confrontation between Doc and and uh Rondo. Um it immediately made me think of another question uh that I had kind of flagged to ask you, which is kind of the contrast, contrasting uh, styles, approaches, uh, uh, and strengths, really, of Doc Rivers and Brad Stevens as coaches. Um, and, you know, uh, I thought it was really interesting, you know, Danny staying calm, your, your characterization there. I think that's probably something that uh, would be always highlighted first with Brad Stevens is his his calm, cool demeanor no matter what else is going on. And, and I'm kind of interested in your perspective on um, not just the distinctions between, you know, Doc Rivers and Brad Stevens. Uh, I think Doc generally gets characterized as an exceptional leader of men, rightly so. Um, and Brad Stevens has had tons of praise heaped upon him for his early success in the NBA, both of them for their after timeouts and uh, X's and O's, um, <laughs> different opinions uh, for both of them from fans on, on rotation patterns and the like. Um, but, you know, like, what do you think of, of the, the contrasting styles of the two coaches? What do you think of Brad Stevens in particular as kind of a leader of men and ma manager of some of the egos that you confront in the NBA um, relative to Doc Rivers, who who's really shown himself in that regard. 
Yeah, it's interesting. And I just got a text from from my wife. So this has got to be the last one. She's like, hey, what's taking so long? You told me 545. Hey, <laughs> hey you know what it's like when we start talking about balls, you know, time goes up the window. Your family loves you back in a different way than basketball. <laughs> That's right. Um, but uh, so this is a, you know, it's, it's such a good question. I would say um, that both Doc and, and, Brad have more of uh, let me, how, how would I say it? I would say that that Doc Rivers has qualities, has Brad Stevens qualities that that Doc doesn't get credit for, and and Brad has Doc qualities that Brad doesn't get credit for. In other words, that you know, Dad, uh, everybody talks about Doc and his motivation, but not his strategy. And he's a he's a he's a brilliant strategist. He really is, and. Uh, with with Brad, talk about that cool demeanor, but you don't talk about him as a motivator. But he is a motivator as well. They just had they just do it in different ways, and I think they have to do it in different ways. Just recognizing who they are in this thing. Like Doc Rivers is a former basketball player, a former All Star player, who played against Michael Jordan, played for Pat Riley, uh, played against Magic. Uh, play with Patrick, you know. Oh, play with Patrick Ewing. Like, you saw him. If you go, like, you go uh, 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 through the NBA highlights, NBA history, you'll see Doc Rivers. And so there's a certain certain things, certain way he carries himself that basketball players recognize, because whether we want to admit it or not, that's kind of in the back of a player's mind sometimes. All right. So did you play? Did you play the game at the at the, at the highest level? Not. Were you the best, but did you play? Players give respect to those who have played the game. And Brad Stevens didn't play the game, and he's aware of that, but he's not, he, he comes in and he lets players know that he's not trying to be the star. He, he, he's not going to try to take credit for anything that you do. But what I love about Brad Stevens, and I, I, and I just don't think we can make this point enough, this is what you want to say about a coach. You can criticize them. We can all criticize coaches for uh, specific decisions that they made and rotations you know, uh, that, that they have that we don't agree with. But if I can say to you about a coach, if I give this, if I give this player to this coach, this player will reach his potential. This player will reach his potential. Whoa, I'll sign me up. And there is not a player that Brad Stevens has had that didn't work out here and worked out somewhere else. So, ooh, here's the trouble for you, trouble for you, player. Uh, if you don't work out for Brad Stevens, that means you're probably not an NBA player. <laughs> you know, because... It's, it's not like you're going to go somewhere else. Hey, that guy didn't understand me. I'm going to go somewhere else and ball out. No, 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 no. That's not happening. If you can't play for him, if you don't have any discernible skills, if they're not present in Boston under Brad Stevens, it's not going to happen for you. Look at it. Look at his history. Everybody who plays for Brad Stevens improves. Everybody. Kyrie Irving. Evan Turner. Isaiah Thomas, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, 
Al Horford, everybody who plays for uh, Brad Stevens, you see them do something that you didn't think they could do before because he gets it out of you. And I think that's just amazing. And so Brad Stevens, you, you can talk about uh, other coaches, uh, talk about uh, uh, Greg Popovich, talk about uh, Nick Nurse, uh, Eric Spolstra. I know Eric Spolstra had a great run uh, against the Celtics. But ultimately, some of the Celtics' weaknesses cropped up on them too. Their, their lack of bench scoring, their lack of outside shooting, uh, their lack of, 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 of a credible uh, backup point guard who could not only handle pressure but make shots, and, and uh, some deficiencies at the five, I think that showed up on them too. Yeah, Eric Spolstra outcoached out him, but I think there were some personnel issues too. I'll take Brad Stevens over anybody else in the NBA. And with that, with that, fellas, I have to say uh, goodbye. I've been uh, married for 13 years. I want to make it. I, I want to make it to 14. I want to make it to 14. So. The book is called "The Big Three: The Rebirth of the Boston Celtics" by Michael Holly. It's a great read. Go buy it and read it, Michael Holly. What a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Uh, pleasure's all mine. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it immensely. And I'm serious, man. Uh, uh, you got my information. When we get past uh, some tough times as a country, I, I would I would really enjoy uh, just getting together with you guys and just uh, and talking basketball. Maybe it's before a Celtics game. Uh, fortunately, the fours is going to stay alive, so we can go over to the fours and just uh, and just talk ball and watch a game or something. Sounds amazing. We've got like 602 more questions for you, so we'll have to do this again. But now, <laughs> happy wife, happy wife, happy life, and, and happy holidays. That's right. Truer, truer words have never been spoken. 